Hey, everybody. Welcome to Quizlet, the weekly show where we chat with upcoming Quizzertron panelists. I'm your host, Rebecca Watson, and today I'm talking with a returning champion. She actually won the beloved Quizzertron belt way back in April, but you didn't hear it because the audio from that night was lost forever. <laughs> so she's coming back next week to do it all again. Uh, you might know her from her popular blog, from social media, where she's known as Twitter's gynecologist, God help her, or from anytime Gwyneth Paltrow is in the news and a journalist needs a sassy comeback. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jen Gunter. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. I'm so sorry that we we lost your your winning game. I know. Last time. I, I was I know I was I was uh well, I'm just gonna have to bring my A game again. That's right. Yeah. I mean, last time you were up against it was Adam Savage, I think. And right. yeah, so I I think you know, that was a pretty stiff competition. So I I think you've got good odds. All right. Not to say that Kishore Hari and Ngayo uh, Bielam are slouches. <laughs> Pretty bright. So. <laughs> I just realized I just put them down. <laughs> Did not <mean> to do that. <laughs> it's all in good fun. I would expect nothing but the same when, when you're talking with them about me. <laughs> so, Jen, let's talk about what you do because uh, you are an actual doctor and uh, you are actually a gynecologist who's practicing. So despite the fact that, you know, you're, you seem so busy with all of your writing work, I mean, how do you make all of that even work together? Uh, well, I, you know, I have a day job and, uh, and my hobby, I guess, is really writing and reading. And I've always filled my time with just reading medical stuff that maybe was directly related to the day job, but not always. And sometimes, yes. And I've just always been fascinated with how people get information outside of the doctor's office. And this seemed like a natural extension of that because it's very helpful to know the bad information people are being exposed to. Yeah. Uh, so you, you can help people out because, you know, I really believe that looking online is totally a, a great way to do your own research. It's just, it's hard for the average person and even for many doctors and researchers to sort, sort out what is good and what's garbage. So uh, I feel that this is almost like a natural extension of, of what I do, you know, uh, doctoring in the office. How, how often do you have a patient come in and they their head is filled with something that they read online that's completely untrue. I think it's really hard to qualify that uh, because the problem is, is we all synthesize the information we have from multiple data points. And so it's really hard for people to pinpoint and say, you know, I read this here. A lot of times the myths perpetuate themselves and and they hear it from multiple different sources. But, you know, data, research data tells us that a lot of people are looking things up online. Uh, and so I would say that it would be really rare for somebody to come in and part of what they know about their condition hasn't been generated online. And how much of that's true and how much is not? I mean, it's just like fake news. It's really hard when there's good information mixed in with bad information to kind of parse out where they got what from. Yeah. What what made you decide to be a gynecologist? Uh, well, I became a gynecologist because I was uh, pissed off that um, that all my lectures in medical school about women's health came from men. And and that was really kind of the reason I did it. I did it out of sort of anger that why why was I not getting 
lectures by really great intelligent women. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, I have based my entire career off of anger. So I completely relate to this. You know, I, and, and I was angry at the time that it was hard for women to get access to abortion, even though I was in Canada. Uh, this was right around the time when abortion, uh, the abortion law was struck down. And, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those, you know, well, goddamn, I'm just going to damn, I'll do it myself if no one else is doing it. Right. So, uh, you know, it, it was kind of one of those like pioneer moments, I guess. <laughs> Is that is it the anger that also drove you to leave the relatively safe confines of Canada for the <laughs> third worldness of the United States when it comes to women's health? Well, actually, I I came for the gonorrhea. Oh, as as we all that should be on our on our on our promotional materials. United States, come for the gonorrhea, stay for the. Microbrews? I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I wanted to do a fellowship in infectious diseases, and there wasn't one available in Canada at the time, infectious diseases and women's health. And so I looked at, there were a few programs in the States, and they all were um, focused around different aspects of infectious diseases and women's health. And the one that I, you know, chose or, you know, was available was available to me was in Kansas City, and I remember distinctly at at the uh, interview them telling me about their impressive rates of gonorrhea as a you know a way to sort of you know we'll be, because you obviously have to have the disease to study and I was really right. fascinated because I'd never seen a case of gonorrhea in my whole residency which I think is a real sort of comment, sad comment on the impact of universal health care, right? When everybody gets in and they get screened and they get treated, diseases go away. That's incredible. So gonorrhea is rampant in certain parts of the United States and relatively unheard of in Canada. At the time, um, I couldn't tell you what this, you know, this was in the early 1990s. And so I couldn't tell you what the data is like in Canada today. Uh, but at the time, there were these huge pockets of outbreaks. And, uh, you know, I mean, Canada obviously has problems with poverty as well. And a lot of many infectious diseases do match poverty because that's Obviously, it's harder to get in and get seen, but but when you're you don't have to pay to go to the doctor's office, it does make a big difference. Yeah, was it just the rarity of gonorrhea that attracted you to studying it, or was there something else about gonorrhea that's interesting? Uh, no, no. I mean, that's the only thing that sort of struck me from the interview was just this. You know, they were really selling their gonorrhea. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I mean, where I grew up in in Winnipeg, we had they had a horrible outbreak of chancroid, which is incredibly rare in North America. So these strange po these pockets of infectious diseases, as they relate to sexual health, certainly crop up. But um, but I think that there were many aspects of the fellowship, and the fact that I was able to spend one day a week at the county health department working in the STD clinic was actually really very transformative. It was incredible for me to to see people who'd never had access to a doctor before. You know, coming from Canada, that was just kind of unheard of. Yeah. I mean, if you if you lived like way up in rural northern Manitoba, you might not have had access, but that's because you were living, you know, a thousand miles away from a city right. um, versus you live in a major metropolitan area and you can't afford to see a doctor. And it was, you know, I would see people who had, you know, suffered from generational poverty and they would, they would look at me, go, you're really a doctor? I'm seeing a doctor? And I'd be like, 
yeah, yeah. I, and I, I was sad. And you'd yeah. see people take two or three buses. And because on Monday was the day the doctor was at the health department, because the other days was staffed by, you know, these amazing nurse practitioners and public health officials. But so really, that had a had a huge impact on me. I'm um, seeing, you know, the these people really had very little access and how grateful they were to have some access. Um, yeah. And so it was really a privilege to, to help care for them. That's incredible. What what ended up bringing you to the Bay Area? Uh, I came to the Bay Area. It's a little bit of a sad story uh, because my children were born very prematurely and I lived in Colorado in Denver at the time. And um, both my children had um, significant lung disease of prematurity and my son Oliver, in addition, uh, had a complex heart defect because obviously being one pound, 11 ounces wasn't enough of a hardship for wow. him to face. And so he'd been on oxygen, you know, for about a year, year and a half and was still being admitted in and out of the hospital with pneumonias. And every time he'd have to be on oxygen for a month or two after and I just thought, I've got to get him to sea level. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So I looked for a job at sea level, and I was lucky enough that with my training and background, I was able to to get one in the Bay Area. And uh, and so that's that. But that's that's how I ended up sort of migrating west. I never even considered the impact that being a mile up in Denver would have on. Any, not just babies, but anybody with severe respiratory diseases. I was, I was there for a few days a couple of years ago, and I had this horrific headache, and I didn't. I thought I was getting sick until a bartender was like, "No, it's altitude sickness, you idiot." Yeah, um, and it it never occurred to me like how hard that would be. Yeah, on a on a newborn baby with severe problems. Yeah, no, it really was. I mean, and it it it's it impact for people who have heart disease and other things, and obviously, you know, every everywhere you live has, has issues. So I'm always, you know, I really love the belief that you're just kind of picking your poison. I mean, there's other places that have, um, you know, bad pollution and, you know, incredible heat or incredible cold. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's potential health issues no matter where you live. Yeah. So um, I think it's always, you're a little bit kind of picking your poison or, or if you look at it that way, but, but for him, that, that seemed to be a huge, huge problem. And so uh, he's done much better since coming to sea level. And now, for, you know, obviously I wanted to pick a place with, you know, lower on the pollution scale and I didn't want to go somewhere where it was too hot or too cold. And so yeah. I, it, it's funny, you know, for all of my evidence-based practices, I had this idea stuck in my head, you know, from sort of 17th century medicine where they would be like, go to the coast. You right. must go take the waters at the coast. And that whole sort of idea just became really stuck in my head that, you know, I, is there some truth to that? I thought, well, it can't be worse than where we are. So right. and that's how I ended up here. <laughs> I, this is maybe a little, a little personal. So tell me to go screw if you don't want to answer it, but is it, is it harder, do you think, or easier to be a doctor and have a child who's going through that sort of intensive care? You know, it's hard for me to answer that question because I've never not I mean, I, right. I've been a doctor since I was 23. I mean, I've been a doctor for more than half my life. So it's, I can't even, I can't even remember what it was like for me before I was. So right. I don't have another experience. I think that in ways it's easier and in ways it's harder. I think obviously you understand things better and you know how to communicate with healthcare professionals, which is part of a really big reason why I blog because I, I, 
being going through such horrible medical conditions with my children and realizing that how hard it was and how bad a lot of the information was and how hard it was to communicate with healthcare providers for many different reasons. I thought, you know, I was lucky enough that I could call up a, a friend in Michigan and have them hook me up with a specialist there to get a second opinion or call somebody in Texas. You know, I had this network right. and I thought, you know, everybody doesn't have that. And if I could just do an information dump from what's on my head online, at least I could, you know, maybe clean up my little corner of the Internet and make it easier for people who are facing challenges in other ways. That brings up a, a really good point. I, I think a lot of the talk these days about health online and particularly directed at women is this idea that we should uh, we should take a more active role in our health care. And unfortunately, a lot of that is coupled with these ideas of alternative medicine or of telling your doctor no when the doctor suggests something. Uh, how do you balance encouraging particularly women to be proactive about their health care, but still following science-based uh, medicine? I think it's important to teach people how to, how to research good information online. I mean, it's no different than when you, you know, when you get your degree in science, right? They t teach you how to source the right material and how to reference things. And so, I, you know, I explain to people that, you know, where are unbiased sources of information and where are good tutorials to find? You know, I tell people that if someone's selling you a product, you know, they, they have a bias. And so you have to be really careful about that. I, I think one of the, the big sort of ironies or hypocrisies, I'm not really sure, combination word is probably good, of the people who are trying to sort of scare people online is that they're, you know, they're using fear to, to, to motivate people. And, and that tends to me to be coming from a place of maybe not um, being completely genuine, because that seems like there's an ulterior motivation. So, but it's hard for people to sort out the two. It, it really is. And it can even be hard for somebody with a lot of training to sort it out, especially when you start thinking about the fact there, um, you know, all these junk journals and predatory journals and, um, you know, it's sorting the wheat from the chaff is not easy. Yeah. And I, I always think back to Jenny McCarthy's peak when she was <laughs> yelling at mothers to be tiger moms and how she it was it's sold as this empowering thing like you're a mother you have you have uh, a mother's instinct you have you know that that mystique that allows you to know better what's wrong with your child and to me that that puts so much pressure on mothers because and and I read an article from the mother of an autistic child who talked a little bit about this where she said you know I would love to be a tiger mom, but when I, when Jenny McCarthy tells me that I know what to do about my child and I look at my child, I don't know. And it makes me feel like I'm not a good enough mother. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of harm in some of that messaging. And, and the problem is, is there's always some truth to it. I mean, there is truth to the fact that as a mom, you know your child best. You know when they're happy, you know when they're unhappy. You understand their moods. But that's different than than knowing vaccine safety. But that message is melded together by somebody like Jenny McCarthy. So, so it's true. I mean, we can tell when our children are tired or hungry or when they're upset or sad, but but 
to then conflate that with with knowing if uh, if the MMR vaccine is safe or not is, is different. It, you know, obviously there it's it would not be the right thing to conflate the two. So, and that's I think part of how bad science messaging works is that it it sort of parasitizes on top of something that is a truth and twists it. So, right. uh, you know, like women, of course, have been mistreated by mainstream medicine, but women have been mistreated by society and mainstream medicine is part of society, right? So there really haven't been women in a large percentage of medicine until sort of the 80s, really, right? So, of course, medicine is behind the times. Uh, other fields may have had more women sooner. So you you take something that's a truth and then you use it as a reason to knock down things that have been well proven and, and you know, that that's wrong. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about another horrible person who <laughs> spreads pseudoscience. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. She's, uh, did you read the New York times profile that came out? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's been sent to me by so many people. I, my, my mentions blew up yesterday and uh, I, you know, I had, no idea really it was coming. So, I mean, I, I, I knew maybe a few hours before it hit, hit the presses. I, I kind of got fair warning, but that was it. Uh, and I wasn't interviewed for it at all. And it wasn't about me. So I shouldn't have been interviewed for it. I mean, that's totally fine. You were mentioned though. It was mentioned. Yeah, I was mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the idea, I mean, it was very vindicating in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, here she was last year accusing me of, you know, using her to become some kind of celebrity or whatever and saying that how wrong I was and they were just offering women information. And now, you know, like grudgingly, we have to prove that we're right. And I'm like, well, you know, I am the expert really in all of the areas yeah. I've written about. And I mean, except for talking to fruit, I don't think anybody's an expert with that, but, or ghosts. What, what was the fruit? It was a psychic that talks to fruit? Well, no, no. Well, um, he's the medical medium. And he talks to he has a he talks to um, a spirit called Spirit with capital S, um, and he was born with an ability to commune with the spirit who can tell you what's wrong with you. And I guess you know according to Spirit, apricots are most likely to give you their healing properties in the evening. And oh, know, good. Yeah, it's not really spelled out though, like which time zone or if that means where it's picked or when it's eaten, <laughs> um, what season, you know, it's a different northern side. I mean, it's so ludicrous. The moon count. Right. I mean, maybe that's part of it. But you know, this yeah. this guy's been a best selling author and uh people you know, he promotes ideas like Epstein Barr virus causes every type of thyroid disease, you know, patently incorrect. And and you know, people read this and it sounds plausible to them because a lot of people don't know the difference between quasi-science and science because it's not their field. And if somebody yeah. who's trusted like a celebrity is endorsing them, people follow it. Yeah. So, but yeah, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been an interesting couple of, couple of days. Of course, a lot of people have said, you know, you should be her fact checker. And I'm like, well, she couldn't afford me. Yeah. So that was, that was big news revealed in that, in that profile Goop is planning to actually hire a fact checker. Like, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. Well, I mean, obviously, it, it depends on, you know, they have this sort of rating system online right now, right, where it's like ancient modality, which that's not any kind of fact checking, right. but anybody can say something's ancient. I mean, 
who knows? But that doesn't make it true. I mean, people did all kinds of horrible things okay. in history. I mean, you know, you've seen horrible, you know, horrible histories, the hospital version, you know, where it's yeah. like, you know, like, well, it doesn't make it Let's good. Not wash our hands and do bloodletting to cure everything. Why not? Right. Yeah. I mean, let's pack wounds with feces. Sure. I don't know. Um, no, don't do that. If you're listening to this, don't do that at all. But, you know, um, so I think that it's hard to know. I mean, there, and it, what is a, I mean, in the article, I think she was quoted as saying, well, what is a fact? Like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, is something going to be quote, quote, you know, fact-checked if it's in a predatory journal? Yeah. Right. So, so you could say that's fact-checked, it would be fact-checked poorly, but so I think that it just depends on, you know, who, who they hire and what their, you know, what their definition is. I mean, of a source. (laughs) It seems very Trumpian, you know, very, I mean, it's an alternative fact. So, okay. It's been alternative fact-checked. It, it's fine. You know, that, that's what I see happening. Yeah. I mean, obviously an alternative fact is a lie, you know, I mean, and as you know, I think that, but as we've also seen with the political landscape, you know, saying that something's untrue doesn't seem to make any difference for some people. Unfortunately. Yeah. I got the feeling that, I mean, Paltrow presents this idea of goop as being about her wanting to share the best of life with everyone. Uh, But then she says things like, how controversies are great because she can quote monetize those eyeballs. Do you think (laughs) is the general public ever going to catch on that? This is just a really crass money-making scheme. Well, it's, um, you know, that's, I mean, of course, that's what I've been calling them out for, right? And you and many other people that this is clearly money making. And she basically admitted it. I mean, she's admitted it in, in press. So I don't know. I mean, I think that there are so many people who have such paranoia about um, companies and medicine and toxins that it's really hard to undo. I mean, we can't get people to stop drinking eight glasses of water a day. Right. Right. I mean, there's no big water or, you know, or little water trying to not, you know what I mean? There's no forces of good or evil telling people to drink or not drink water. Although, I mean, maybe some of the alternative websites, but you know what I mean? Like there's no water industry, you know, really promoting that. There's no water industry not promoting it. It doesn't matter how many times that myth gets debunked. People do not want to disbelieve it. I mean, every time I write on it, there are people who write horrible comments about it. And I'm like, I, you know, like, like they take it personally, like it, yeah. that myth means so much to them. Because it's like a re- I really believe it's like a religion for a lot of people. Be you, they feel like you're insulting their their religious belief. I mean, the whole idea about the water myth has been traced back to how it initially was a you know like a lot of these myths. It was a poor game of telephone, right? Somebody had a fact and it got mixed up, and then that got perpetuated. Yeah, it's so so. If we can't get people to stop drinking eight glasses of water a day, I mean, you know, <laughs> everything else will be a lot harder. It does seem like wellness in general is becoming a bit of a religion. And it's, 
and like you say, it's it's all the more difficult because there are these grains of truth in it. Like you should be drinking a lot of water. Drink water instead of Diet Coke, unlike me. Uh, <laughs> Actually, you shouldn't be drinking a lot of water. That's oh. why you have you have a thirst mechanism. You should drink when you're thirsty. You should trust your body. That's the ultimate wellness, right? Like unless you're outside working in you know 110 degree weather and you're sweating and your dehydration may get ahead of your thirst mechanism, you know, trust your body. Um, so, you know, you don't need to be out there. I don't ever consciously drink water. When I, when I'm told, when my body says, Hey, you're thirsty, I go and get a glass. <laughs> if I'm going to go for a run and it's a hot day, I use my common sense and I say, I'm going to have a glass of water before I go for a run. And when I come back, if it's been a hot day, I say, boy, Jennifer, it was hot. You should have a glass of water. That's brilliant. I, I don't know why that never occurred to me. <laughs> I'm just, you know, so, but so undoing that is so hard. So it's, yeah. you know, it's, and it's, I'm really fascinated by the things that people are willing to believe. Um, and I mean, it's I, a lot of other people are, and I think that's just part of what makes us human. Yeah. Real quick. What's the, what do you think is the worst thing Gwyneth Paltrow has ever uh, said or done? <laughs> oh, or promoted? Um, pro- well, I I really think it's this the promoting advice from naturopaths as being yeah. um you know like that we're all filled with parasites uh, you know that that post on there was a post they had on using raw goat's milk to drink for parasites oh, I mean that's pretty out there but I think the cancer ones are particularly troublesome because cancer people who've had cancer are very vulnerable and, you know, there's the uh, promoting that $5,000 infrared sauna, you oh know. Oh, my God, that was great. insane. You know, like things like people yeah. are desperate. And that's yeah. – so I think the whole just preying on desperation, all the while saying that that's what the pharmaceutical industry is doing. I mean, she's the same thing. She's doing yeah. the same thing, um, but it's worse because her products don't have to go to the FDA. I mean, I, and I'm no – fan of big pharma. I mean, I know that they submit, they don't necessarily submit all their data. They keep, but at least they're submitting something. Right. Right. And at least they have some FDA rules around marketing. You know, she's got none of that. So I would say that she's in many ways, exactly like you said, just like Trump, every single thing she's accusing other people of doing, she's doing herself. Yeah. Jen, uh, why don't you tell people where to find you online? Sure. You can find me online. My blog is drjengunter.com and I'm on Twitter as Dr. Jen Gunter and I'm on Instagram as Dr. Jen Gunter and I'm on Facebook as Dr. Jen Gunter. So it's super easy. And whatever platform you like, come and see me there. I also uh, write a column for the New York Times once a month-ish called The Cycle. I know it's a great plan where it's right once a month-ish, kind of like your period. Yeah. Um, In this style section, which is sort of of a, a look at science and sex and society and how it overlaps. Awesome. And of course, you can see Dr. Jen Gunter on our next Quizzertron happening August 2nd at Piano Fight in San Francisco, where she will be joined by Kishore Hari, Ngayo Bilam, and our resident comedian, Keith L. Jensen. Ticketing info is up now on Eventbrite, or check the link in the show notes. If you aren't in San Francisco, of course, you can hear that show when it goes up on the podcast next week. 
Uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining me and good luck in the show next week. Thank you so much. I will do my best to represent gynecology. <laughs> 